The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Happy Father's Day to all the dads here this morning. It is such a blessing to be a parent and to be a dad. And this morning I wanted to start a little bit by telling you about my dad because he is an amazing, amazing earthly father. So I want to, my family background is that uh, my mom has suffered from a chronic illness basically my whole life. And so that has meant that my dad has had to take on a significant amount of responsibilities for my family. And so as a kid growing up, he would wear many, many different hats. He would work all day while simultaneously caring for my mom and then make dinner and provide for all the different, uh, many of the different needs that we had physically as kids, taking us places and doing different things. And day after day, he would do this and he would do it with a joy in his heart. He would always have an amazing attitude about it. No matter what was going on in his life, I have no idea if he was ever stressed because he never showed it. I had no idea if he was internally angry or frustrated because he never showed it. He just consistently loved us. And he exemplified to me what it looks like uh, in the Bible for husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He literally laid down his life for my mom, providing for her in so many different ways and selfishly giving day after day after day. And I'm so thankful for that example that he set for me. Uh, My friends would literally joke about him uh, because they thought that he must be a CIA agent having a secret double life. Literally, that was the joke that they brought up over and over again because there was no way possible that someone could carry the load that he carried and still have such a loving, positive energy to everyone that came into our family's home. Another influential dad in my life was a friend of mine named Chris Gerlach that I want to introduce you to. Nearly 15 years ago, Sherry and I lived in South Carolina, and Chris was really the first friend of mine that had become a dad And it was a totally foreign world to me, one I was not ready to get into. But I remember Chris very vividly as a parent, and he was serving us as a pastor and guiding and shepherding us so well spiritually, while at the same time raising these tiny humans and even working to adopt a child from Africa. And I wanted to introduce you now to Chris, because I'm going to talk about him later in today's sermon, and I wanted to give you a fresh image of this amazing man and father. I want to be clear, I fully recognize that my dad and Chris uh, have never been perfect. I'm so thankful to not only have awesome earthly dad and friends who inspire me to be a better dad, but I have a father in heaven who is perfect. And each one of us sitting here this morning does. No matter what the circumstances are with your earthly dad, you have a perfect father in heaven who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he will always love you. He gave everything he had for you. And praise God for that truth this morning. I also praise God that I get to be a dad. I have two kids, an eight-year-old daughter named Grace and a six-year-old son named Gabriel. Um, It's cool to think that God loves my kids even more than I do. If you're a parent, you know how intense that love is. And the truth is that God loves our kids even more than we do. If you're a parent like me, you have failed miserably at times. You have said things that you didn't want to say. You have been harsh in moments where you should have been soft. 
We've lost patience. We've been disappointed in our kids because of our own pride in our hearts. But God has done none of these things. He has never lost patience with us. He has never been harsh with us. He is always our perfect father. He certainly never would have done one of my funniest parenting fails. Some of you might have heard this already, but I want to share it again for those that haven't. There was a Sunday morning about four or five years ago when Sherry uh, had come to church early to serve, and so it was my responsibility to get the kids up and ready for church here on time. And so they were just like two years old and four, and if you have ever been through those stages, it is tough, okay? The task of getting your kids up and dressed and fed and somewhere on time is not that easy. And so this particular morning, I thought I was killing it, you know? I got here on time. We got downstairs. My kids were fed. They were full. They were ready for church. I put my son in some clothes, probably some uh, shorts and a t-shirt, and my daughter in a dress, and they were ready to go. And so I get downstairs, pretty proud of myself, you know, introduce them to Sherry uh, downstairs in the nursery area. She's like, what did you put on Grace? And I was like, what? She looks great. What's the problem? And she whispers, you put her in a long t-shirt. And sure enough, I look over, and Grace is wearing a long t-shirt. And if she raised her hands in any significant way, it would go up, and you would see all the way up her tights and see into her underwear. And so... I know for certain God, our perfect father, would never make such a mistake. <laughs> and I'm so thankful that he loves me despite my failures as a dad and that he models for me what it does look like to be a perfect father. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we just praise you for everyone here. We praise you for the truth of the gospel. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said. I pray that you would uh, dwell with us, that your spirit would move our hearts, that you would help us to have really listening ears this morning to whatever specific thing each person here, uh, you want them to walk away with, God. Uh, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you that you are a worthy God that is worthy of our attention and our time. Be glorified in all that we do this morning, especially me, Lord, and the things that I say, I give uh, myself over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week we're continuing on in our year-long sermon series through the Bible from beginning to end. And the last time I was up here, I talked about how the Bible really does have one consistent theme when looked at from beginning to end. It talks about how we are in need of a rescuer and how God has provided that rescuer to us in Jesus Christ. And today's story is no different. Today we're going to read about a man named Naaman, who despite having immense fame and honor, became sick with leprosy and was desperately in need of a savior. We're going to read about a little girl who, when faced who, with horrific loss at the hands of this man, offers him grace and love. And we're going to see a prophet who was used by God not to bring about not only physical but spiritual cleansing in Naaman's life. We're going to read that because we are all in need of a savior, we must see the world through a gospel lens. Today's big idea is just that. Believing in the gospel evokes a response. Will you open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 through 3? Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. 
Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Let's unpack these three verses. Something really profound is happening right now. In verse 1, we're introduced to Naaman, the commander of the army for the king of Syria. This army and country are enemies of the Israelites, God's people. He is powerful and thought of with high favor among his people. And thanks to a God that he does not yet believe in, the one true God, it's likely that Naaman is at the top of the society's totem pole. He's a successful military officer. He commands Syria's army, army, excuse me, a unit that allows Damascus to dominate the region. His king praises him for his work. He exhibits crit, uh, courage, and by the words, world standards, he has made it to the top. But there is one very big problem for Naaman. He has leprosy. In Bible times, people suffering from the skin disease of leprosy were treated as outcasts. There was no cure for the disease, which gradually left a person disfigured through the loss of fingers, toes, and eventually limbs. And before and even after the discovery of its biological cause, leprosy patients were stigmatized and shunned. Leprosy leaves people with discolored patches of skin. They might have ulcers on their feet, lumps on their faces and earlobes, and they might even lose their eyebrows or eyelashes. They also might eventually go blind. And to be a leper had enormous consequences for one's life in a myriad of ways. Naaman is in need of a rescuer. Let's read again in verses 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. A little girl from the land of Israel is taken from her family by Naaman and his army. She is ripped away from the people that she loves to serve Naaman's wife in a foreign land. It's possible that Naaman's army actually killed her family members. It's plausible that she could have been sexually or physically abused. A reference study Bible I uh, read made a great observation saying, the two couldn't be more different. She's an Israelite and he is an Ar a man. She is a little maiden, and he is a great man. She is a captive servant, and he is a commander. He has fame in the king's estimation, and she has none, for she simply waited upon Naaman's wife. And by many people's standards, she should get a pass. If she chooses to hate Naaman, she should have every reason to view him as despicable. She has every reason to be bitter and wish the worst for Naaman. But instead of this natural response, we see something very different. We see a child that sees Naaman the way God sees him. She sees that Naaman needs a rescuer, and not only does she have compassion on Naaman, not only does she wish him well, but she points him in the direction of the one that can heal him. There is no hatred or bitterness portrayed in this act. The little girl says, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Lesson number one this morning is that there can be no hatred or bitterness in the life of a follower of Christ. I want to get real for a second this morning. There are people here today that might be listening to what I'm saying that have experienced horrific hurt or abuse at the hands of others. There may be people hearing this that have experienced sexual, physical, or mental abuse. 
There may be people hearing this that have experienced the ugliness of racism. There may be people here this morning that have experienced other types of traumas at the hands of others that hang over us like a cloud. And even worse, some of the things, these evil things that I've mentioned this morning have happened in churches in our country. And I want to be clear this morning to communicate that God hates sin and it is not okay. There are things that people in this room have experienced that are absolutely not okay. To you, I believe God would say, I see your pain. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's notice, and neither does one of your tears, the Bible says. Praise God that our comforter is also a fair and righteous judge. Psalms 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And that's where I encourage all of us to fix our eyes this morning, on his throne. 1 John 4.20 is very clear about hatred and bitterness. It says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul wrote, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And despite this very clear call from Scripture, we continue to struggle with this truth at times. We actually have done just the opposite. We continue to think that we might be even serving Jesus by having a self-righteous anger or hatred of others. We might justify it by saying, I would have never done what they have done. You don't know what that person's done to me, but did you hear what that politician said or did? Those people are the worst. Those people are so sinful, we might suggest, while we point our fingers and self-righteousness burns in our hearts. Bitterness or hatred toward anyone is a sin, Harvest City. As believers in Christ, nothing can justify it. Not in our church, not in our homes, not in our city, not in our politics. Bitterness and hatred cannot be allowed to live inside our hearts. It says that my sin is not as bad as yours. It says, I deserve God's grace, but you do not. It says that I deserve God's forgiveness but I'm not so sure about you. It puts us on a pedestal that we cast judgment from a seat that we were not intended to sit. We are not the judge. It completely forgets the uh, fact that Christ paid the debts for all of our sins, of which we did absolutely nothing to earn. In Matthew 5, 43 and 47, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor, excuse me, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Notice that it does not say condemn those who disagree with you on my accord. It does not say harbor anger toward those you of you as hypocrites. It says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and prayer. The enemy, I believe, is working overtime to convince us that our bitterness and anger can be justified. He wants us to sit, I think, in a self-righteous state. It happens to me. I'll be honest. He'll use gossip 
news headlines, social media, whatever it takes to rile up my spirit. And I believe a big part of the problem that some of us might struggle with in this area is because we consume far more things of this world for far more consistent amount of time, evoking all these emotions inside of us than we do consuming the word of God and resting in his presence. Fixing our eyes on him is the quickest way out of bitterness and hurt because when we do, he will set us free. Last time I was up here, I told you a little bit about a woman named Corey Tenboom. She lived during the Second World War in Europe and her family hid Jews inside her home uh, from the Germans until they were ultimately caught and thrown into jail and then a concentration camp where her father and her beautiful, loving sister were mercilessly killed. Corey still hung to the hope of Jesus, knowing that he would be victorious whether in this life or the next, and how she chose to spend her years directly following the end of the World War II was uh, to go around Germany and telling people about Jesus' love for them. At one such conference where she was speaking in Germany, she said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. And after she ended her speech, she noticed a man walking up to her. And immediately she could tell that she knew this man from somewhere, but she could not put her hand on it where it was from until he got right up close to her. And it dawned on her who it was. It was a German officer who actually worked in the concentration camp where she and her sister Betsy had lived for years and again where they were tortured and treated horrifically and where her beloved sister and best friend was killed. The man extended his hand to her and he says, how good is it to know as you say all our sins are at the bottom of the sea? Suddenly, Corey's message of forgiveness was put to the test in the most serious way. The man said to her, I have become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me of all the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? Corey says that her heart dropped, and she tensed up big time. She was struggling to reconcile the truth that she believed in her heart with the fact that this man was standing in front of her asking for her forgiveness. She prayed to Jesus in that moment, and she said that God immediately spoke to her, reminding her of Jesus' words that said, If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Jesus, help me, she prayed. She mustered up the courage to stick out her hand to join her hand, suggesting that that's all I can do right now to God, she says in that moment. As she says, when she joined hands with that man at that very moment, that a current of energy rushed down her shoulders, down her arm, and into their joined hands. She says that her whole being was flooded with the Holy Spirit, bringing tears to her eyes. And she looked at him straight in the eyes, and she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. I'll never forget a huge moment in my life in this area. Someone at work a few years ago had treated me horrifically, and other people that I worked with uh, for a number of years, there was one particular day where 
They went into an office and talked badly about me very loudly that anyone passing by would be able to hear, saying things that were not fair and were not true. Uh, and I was just livid. I don't get uh, super mad if you know me uh, very often uh, at all, but I uh, was beside myself. I really was, and I could not shake it. I kept praying and praying that night, and I woke up the next morning. I was still ticked as, ticked as heck, and um, I called Scott on the way to work because I knew I had to talk to this person, and I knew we had to have an honest conversation, and uh, my heart was not there. I was not ready to offer this person any type of grace, and Scott listened really well and uh, just offered um, to, to continue to listen to me, and I... And I took that moment to really justify where I was at. I told him all the things this person had done to me, all the ways they'd wronged everyone in my office, all the things they said, and all the ways that they deserved to be, uh, <laughs> had someone really ticked at him. Uh, Scott said, uh, he thanked me, uh, and, he, and he said, let me pray for you. And I'll never forget what he said in that prayer. That was really transformative uh, for the rest of my life, to be honest. What he said during that prayer, he said, God, I thank you so much that you have forgiven Mike for far greater sins than this coworker has sinned against him. And it was absolutely true. Like in that moment, bam, gone. All of that stuff that that person had done to me that I was holding against them was gone. In light of knowing what I had done, knowing the sins that I had committed and the ways God had forgiven me, there was no way that I could hold this person to any type of different standard. If any of us are carrying this weight today, if anyone has really wronged us in some significant, significant way, or they've wronged someone that you love in some significant way, what do we do with that? Well, Jesus says that we are to love that person that has wronged us in the same way that God loves us. When we were wrong and we were sinning, Jesus died for us. Jesus tells us to pray for those we struggle to love. Give it to Christ. We need to step down off the judgment seat and reflect on what Jesus has done for us. We need to offer forgiveness in our heart, even if no one has apologized or asked for it. We need to let all bitterness go this morning and give it to the rescuer. Let's move back into our text, where thanks to this little girl's compassion on Naaman, Naaman has been pointed to the rescuer himself. We'll continue reading in verses 4 and 5. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. The letter arrives to the king of Israel, and at first he's concerned that Naaman's arrival is only going to bring about trouble, but Elijah the prophet of God, which Naaman's servant spoke about could heal him, knows that God has a greater plan. Elijah says, let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Continue with me in verses 10 through 12. And Elijah sent him a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over this place and cure the leper. Are not the Abanak and the Farfar and the rivers of the Damascus better than all the rivers of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage 
A lot is happening here. Naaman has a lot of pride. He came in bringing all his money and gifts, which here is the equivalent to a combined annual wages of 600 common laborers. That's how much he brought. He brought a note from the king, and it appears that he thinks that he could buy his healing with riches and power. He thought that he could earn his cleansing. He thought that if he knew the right people and bought the right gifts, that he would be cleansed. He thinks that the rivers near him are better than the ones that the, uh, God's prophet had suggested. He thought that there was more than one way to be cleansed. He thought his way was better, but that is not true. Naaman is a perfect example of someone who is not only physically dying, but spiritually dying. And lesson number two is that without Christ, we are all dying a spiritual death. Here's the reality. We are all physically dying, just like Naaman. We may not have leprosy. We may not have a terminal illness. But today, when each one of us woke up, we were one day closer to our final day on this earth. That's true for every single person on this planet. That's kind of morbid to think about. I understand that. I understand the weight of this truth, but that's why I want to talk about it today. It brings up the fact that none of us know how long we will be here. Ecclesiastes 9.12 says, For man does not know his time. So what's the most important implication of the reality that we are all dying a physical death? What's the most important implication of this truth? I believe that can only be found in eternity. The number one implication of death is what comes after death. God is 100% righteous and 100% just. And just like we share the reality that our physical bodies are wasting away and we will one day die, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are people like Naaman all around, all around us in our lives that think that their forgiveness and healing can be earned. There are people all around us that establish their own standard for what is good and trust that one day that when they stand before God, that God will measure them up against the standard that they've set for themselves. It makes no sense to me. What if my standard of good is different than yours or theirs? An individualistic understanding of what is inherently good or good enough holds absolutely no weight before a holy and perfect God. Only he is truly good. The Bible says that all our righteousness and good deeds are as filthy rags to God. And like Naaman, there are people who believe there are lots of ways to heavens, a little bit of Christianity, Christianity, a little bit of this philosophy, a little bit of that. That's my truth. That's my truth. We hear that all the time in our culture. But honestly, I believe that makes no sense because truth cannot be relative when it comes to God. Either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, or he was a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis once said. I love these lyrics from a rapper named Lecrae from a song called Truth. I'm probably going to butcher its delivery, but just <laughs> focus in on the words, okay? Because they're good. Man, some folks say all truth is relative. It just depends on what you believe. You know, hey man, ain't no way to know for sure who God is or what's really true. But that means you believe your own statement, that there's no way to know what's really true. You're saying that that statement is true. You're killing yourself. If what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, what if my truth says yours is a lie? Is it still true? 
If what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me, what if my truth says your truth is a lie? Is your truth still true? Truth in God cannot be relative. At Harvest City, we believe that Jesus is the truth. And apart from him, we are dying a physical and spiritual death. The truth is that we all need love, grace, and compassion that is offered through the one true God. And that's where we come in. How good are we at being sensitive to the spiritual illness of sin existing in a world that separates us from a holy and righteous God for eternity? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the greatest issue plaguing our world. What we're talking about here has eternal consequences. What are we doing in light of this truth? How are we responding? Do we see the world with gospel eyes? Do we listen with gospel ears? Do we respond with the lens of the gospel? The gospel has the power to permeate every minute of our day and every single conversation, every single interaction. What are we doing to share Christ with others? Do we live as though it's our greatest need in light of our guaranteed death and eternal life? What else could possibly matter more than that? Seriously, what else could possibly matter more? God's restoration is for sure what Naaman found to be his greatest need, despite his arrogance and desire for quick healing that he thought he could buy. His servants convince him to listen to the prophet Elijah. Read with me in verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Lesson number three this morning is that God's grace is the only cure. God's grace offers us freedom from death, sin, and Satan. The scripture goes on to tell us that at that point, Naaman realizes there is no other God but the one true God. He was blind, but now he sees, and he promises that he will never truly worship any other God. He was spiritually dead, but now he is alive. Not only does God use a prophet to help someone from the enemy that was suffering from leprosy, but he restores the enemy. And that is who our God is. He is 100% righteous, 100% just, and also 100% loving and 100% gracious. God shows us his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Naaman found out that no amount of money, good deeds, or sacrifice could ever cleanse him from a holy, perfect, and righteous God. It was through faith alone, by grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. Receiving the gospel compels us to respond. It compels us to live a life for his glory. And what we see that is true for Naaman. He quickly desires to build an altar for the Lord to worship him, and he makes it clear that his life will never be the same. So I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, I would share a little bit about my friend, Chris. During our time in South Carolina from 2008 to 2011, he was such an amazing example to me of a man who understood the gospel and its implications on his life. We had just been a a part of a church plant in downtown Columbia, South Carolina, and immediately the first ministry that he recognized a need for our church to start was a homeless ministry because uh, homeless folks would gather around our building often in the mornings throughout the week. And the way that he spent the first hours of every single day, every single week, was going out, providing those people something to drink. He would sit down with them on the concrete 
and he would listen to them, and he would talk to them, and he would talk about the, God's love for them and Jesus' uh, provision for their life, and he would encourage them. After we moved away, another example of how Chris continued to see the world through a gospel lens was uh, when they moved to uh, a town about an hour south of South Carolina to start another church. And there was a Dunkin' Donuts that he would frequent. And there was a, a couple women in that store that he would see every day that he would go to that Dunkin' Donuts. And he believes that God put it on his heart to just start praying for these women, to start caring for these women. He wanted to pastor them exactly where they were at, at that Dunkin' Donuts store every single day. And he would encourage them, and he would listen to them, and he would love on them. It wasn't just about getting them to his church, not at all whatsoever. He wanted them to know the love of Christ. He wanted to serve them right where they were, right at that Dunkin' Donuts. I'm so thankful for his example in those few short years that we lived in South Carolina. I still have never had such a fun, goofy, caring friend like him. We're doing some like dance revolution thing on we or something like that here on, on a New Year's night. Chris's story is also unique and relevant today because of what happened to him one fall day several years ago. I'll never forget it. Sherry and I were sitting at an area high school football game enjoying the most perfect fall night, and it felt like we did not have a care in the world. We got a text from one of our good friends in South Carolina. Chris had been playing ultimate frisbee with a bunch of our friends when he collapsed. On the heels of planting a new church and adopting a child for Africa, Chris experienced a massive heart attack, and he died right in front of many of our friends. He was in his mid-30s. Sometime later, Chris's wife, Carla, found sermon notes he'd written about leaving a legacy, and he wrote these words on the top of those sermon notes. He wrote, value Jesus more than anything else. Chris's life re reflected this belief. He left a legacy that has ripple effects in the people's lives today. He made decisions in this life that have eternal consequences. His wife wrote this on one of the anniversaries of his passing. We still miss you like crazy, and you'd be so proud of your boys. Both have given their hearts to Jesus, and they are reading and scoring touchdowns, fishing, and giggling. The Lord that you preached about so heartily and sang about so loudly is caring for us in every way. <clears throat> the prayers you prayed for your kids while you were here on this earth have become true. Later on, uh, a couple years after this, on a Father's Day, she wrote these words. The prayers he prayed and the way he loved us still affect our daily lives. I know he doesn't need a Father's Day gift, but if he did, it would be that his youngest was singing loudly in the bathtub this morning. Through it all, my eyes are on you. It is well with my soul. Harvest City, our life is nothing but a vapor. James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such in a town and spend a year in trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Each moment and opportunity to live for Jesus is precious. None of us know when will be our last. None of us know when this physical death will come to pass for us or anyone that we love. And the time to respond to the gospel is 
now. The time to live a life with a gospel lens is now. What does that look like? Living life with a gospel lens recognizes that apart from Christ, we are all dying a spiritual death. As I mentioned earlier, it is the biggest issue facing our world. Everything else pales in comparison. Disease, racial relations, food shortage, political division, nuclear weapons, war, death, they're all symptoms of one condition. That condition is sin, and it has eternal consequences. Because we are all in need of a rescuer, we must see the world through a gospel lens. The gospel compels us to live a life devoted to God. It compels us to take our sin seriously. It compels us to repent. It compels us to live in community. It compels us to action, like praying for the lost and caring for the oppressed and speaking truth. And when we speak to our friends and our coworkers throughout the day, we should listen with gospel ears. How does what they're saying line up with what the gospel says? What question can we ask to point them toward Jesus and his grace? The reality is that everyone we speak to is in need of Christ's love. At home and with our family, we need to love each other with a gospel heart. The gospel says our marriages aren't about us and satisfying the desires of our own heart, but it's about serving our husbands and our wives and putting them above ourselves and before ourselves. On the phone with our siblings, our parents, the gospel allows us to extend grace in all circumstances. In our neighborhoods, Love with gospel hands and feet. The gospel ignites a passion for others and drives energy to care for those around us that Jesus does for us. Take someone out to lunch. Have someone over for dinner. The gospel reminds us that hospitality is a tremendous way to share God's resources in all the ways that he has given us and blessed us. The gospel says that all should come to repentance. So we should write our friend's name on a card and we should pray for them. Check in on them every week as only a true friend would. We should find ways to serve our friends. We should drop everything when they need us. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to do all of these things because the gospel reminds us that we cannot do anything on our own apart from Christ. We need to listen and act through the lens of the reality that we are all broken and need, in need of a Savior. The gospel powerfully speaks into every situation and every single one of life's circumstances. I pray that when we lay our head on our pillows at nights, that we would have the opportunity to thank the Lord for the opportunities to love and serve him, and that we would be praying that he would sustain us to do it again the next day. I believe the way that we are going to stand out in this world is is when we love people that don't look like you, don't vote like you, and don't believe like you. Because of the gospel, we are compelled to live and love in a radical way. And at the end of the day, and at the end of our life, these are the only things that are going to actually matter. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I love you so much. Thank you so much for the gospel and its transformative power. I pray that that truth would seep in deeper and deeper into our hearts and that we would understand it for what it is, and that we would live a life that reflects the amazing richness and the truth of being Christ followers. I pray for anyone that listening to this that is not quite yet a Christ follower, that they would understand what you've done for them, and that they would trust in what you've done for them on the cross, Lord. Be glorified in our lives. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.